What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Happy Monday. I hope everyone had a great weekend. Between college football, the NFL, MLB playoffs, basketball starting up, this is such a fantastic time in sports. But today I want to talk about a few things going on in the world of sports business, some of the most prominent headlines over the last week. So we're going to talk about Tom Brady. He recently announced a minority stake in the Las Vegas Raiders, but it hit a snag. The Washington Post reported last week that other NFL owners are not happy about it because he's getting a huge discount. So I'll talk you guys through how these deals usually work and why the one with Tom Brady is getting held up so far. Next, we're going to talk about the 2030 FIFA World Cup, the countries that were recently named hosts for 2030, but also the 2034 World Cup and where all signs are pointing that that's going to be held. And last but not least, we're going to be talking about Tiger Woods and Roy McIlroy's new league, TGL. They recently signed a few deals. Some of you guys have heard me talk about this in the past. I'm going to run you through why these deals are important and where this league goes next. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, so let's get right into it. Okay, so I want to start today's episode by talking about Tom Brady's recent purchase of a minority stake in the Las Vegas Raiders. Now, you're not hearing double. This happened in May, several months ago. It was reported by all the other NFL insiders and many other people around the sports world. But the reason why we're still talking about it now is because it hasn't been approved yet. And the reason it hasn't been approved is because the other NFL owners aren't very happy with the deal, according to the Washington Post. Now, some of you may remember that Tom Brady also bought a minority stake in the Las Vegas Aces, the WNBA team that is also owned by Mark Davis, the owner of the Las Vegas Raiders. So he sold him a stake in not only the Raiders, but also the Aces. The Aces deal has been approved. So Tom Brady is a minority owner in that franchise. All good, done, dusted, deal is signed. But the NFL deal is not done yet. And the Washington Post is reporting that Tom Brady is buying a 5 to 10% stake of the team. Now, I've heard about this from other people. This has been reported by many other outlets. That's not a surprise. The surprise here, and the reason why it's getting held up, is that the Washington Post is saying Tom Brady is getting a 70% discount, as much as a 70% discount from Mark Davis to purchase part of this team. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with how these sales usually go, I'm only really talking about this because I got a bunch of DMs coming in from people asking me about how this happened. And the way these deals typically work for people who haven't seen this is that minority interest in teams, minority stakes in professional sports teams, specifically around the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, the major sports leagues in North America, they typically sell at like a 20 to 30% discount. And what that means is if a team, let's use rough numbers here, if a team is worth a billion dollars and someone buys 10% of the team. They just buy a minority stake 10% of the team like Brady is essentially doing with the Raiders. Obviously, that team's more expensive. But for easy numbers, let's say the team is worth a billion dollars. Most people would say, okay, they're buying 10% of the team. They're paying $100 million for their stake. That's not how it works though. And the reason it doesn't work like that is because minority stakes don't get nearly as much access or benefits as a majority owner like Mark Davis. So Mark Davis, as the majority owners of the Raider, he gets to name the head coach. He can hire and fire the head coach. He can hire and fire the GM. He gets to run the franchise, right? He gets to approve sponsorship deals if he wants to, season ticket prices. He gets to hire presidents of the team. He gets to work with politicians on new stadium deals. He obviously played a huge role in getting the team moved to Las Vegas itself. You're in charge of everything, essentially, right? 
But as a minority owner, you don't really get to contribute to any of that stuff. If you think about in basketball, we've seen it with the Golden State Warriors. We've seen it with many other teams too. Minority owners in most cases get season tickets. They get season tickets to the games. They get to attend depending on what kind of stake they own in the team. Maybe if it's 5 or 10 or 20% of the team, they get to attend team functions. But they don't have a say in any of the personnel decisions. In most cases, they're not truly financially benefiting unless there is a a liquidation of the team or a sale of the team, right? So if there's some kind of liquid event that the team either gets sold or they get a distribution or whatever it is. But in most cases, they're not seeing any money and they just get season tickets and maybe they get to attend some events or they get autographs or stuff like that. Now, Tom Brady, albeit is a unique case, he's Tom Brady. He's not buying a percentage of the team just to kind of sit around. He can have access to the team. I'm sure Mark Davis wants him to be involved in some capacity, whether that's from a front office perspective, whether that's just advice, whether that's helping close sponsorship deals or whatever it is, Tom Brady has an advantage. He gives the Las Vegas Raiders an advantage. But the other NFL owners are saying, hey, he doesn't give you a 70% discount advantage. And I think that's fair to be honest, right? Part of me would say, this is Mark Davis's team. He can do whatever he wants. If he wants to give Tom Brady, in this case, a $434 million discount, because that's what it is if he's buying 10% of the team at 70% off. Now, granted, maybe it would be a a $200 million discount because he's already getting a 20 to 30% discount normally, but it's 70% off at a 10% purchase of the Las Vegas Raiders at their $6.2 billion valuation by Forbes. That would mean Tom Brady is getting a $434 million discount to buy 10% of the Raiders. Now, that's crazy. Like, let's just be honest. I don't care who you are. If you're Tom Brady, whoever you are, a 434% discount is crazy. Now, he could argue that he has earned this. Mark Davis, it's his team. He's allowed to do whatever he wants. But ultimately, what you're doing and what the other NFL owners have said that comprise the uh, finance committee, they have said that that is devaluing the franchise to a degree that is unacceptable. Those are my words, not theirs. But I think that's fair because the valuation of every NFL team is done on a comp basis, right? So obviously there's a cash flow basis, there's revenue, there's all these things that go into the valuation of a team. But if you look at what teams previously sold for, it's like contracts, right? Lamar Jackson, he sat back and he didn't do a deal for many years because he said, okay, Jalen Hurts is going to get paid. Then I'll get paid. I'll one-up him. Then Joe Burrow came over and said, okay, I'm going to one-up that. And then Patrick Mahomes said, okay, I want a new deal too. I'm going to one-up that. It's just done off comps. It's the same thing with real estate transactions or whatever it is. So if you sell a minority stake in a team at a 70% discount, the next person that comes in to buy a team is going to say, hey, I shouldn't get a 20% discount. I'm not Tom Brady, but maybe I should get a 40% discount. And I would argue that that is the main reason why the finance committee doesn't believe that this should be happening. Again, this isn't over yet. Brady has a huge contract coming up with Fox 2, 10 years, $375 million, where he's going to be a broadcaster. So there has been some hearsay around that if it's fair or it should be allowed. Ultimately, I think it is going to be allowed, but my guess is that he's going to have to pay a little bit more than he initially thought, still going to get a discount, even if it's 50%. That's probably acceptable to some degree, considering most LPs, limited partners in this case, would be getting a 20 to 30% discount. Tom Brady is no different. He's going to get a discount. His name, his reputation, his ability to bring value to the franchise is obviously worth more than a silent partner or a silent limited partner in some sense. We're seeing private equity firms buy into these franchises now, not in the NFL, but certainly in the NBA. Tom Brady, albeit would provide a much larger advantage to the franchise than those firms would. And for that reason, he does deserve a bigger discount. 
Now, I also agree, like I said, that he doesn't deserve a 70% discount. But let's move on to the next topic. The next topic I want to talk about today is some big news out of the soccer world last week. It was the 2030 FIFA World Cup. It got announced the host countries for this. Now, this is a really unique event because it's going to be taking place across six countries and three continents. Now, the way this is going to work is Spain and Portugal have been working on a joint bid for the 2030 World Cup for a long time. Obviously, 2026 is going to be happening in North America, across Canada, the United States, and Mexico. But Spain and Portugal were saying, we want 2030. At the last minute, Morocco, who was working on their own individual bid, decided to join forces with Spain and Portugal for a joint bid. So those three countries wanted their own World Cup in 2030. Now, the other bid in this case was uh, countries Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, those countries across South America. So the way that this is going to work is that Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay are going to host the first three games, the opening three games of the tournament to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the tournament taking place. The first World Cup was held in 1930 in Uruguay. So they're going to hold the first three opening games in those three countries. And then everyone is going to go fly over to Spain, Portugal, and Morocco to finish out the tournament. So again, six countries, three continents. That's the first time that it's ever happened. And Morocco is actually the first Northern African country to host World Cup games. Again, this is going to be amazing. The World Cup, in my opinion, is the best sporting event in history. I think it's absolutely amazing. It's better than the Super Bowl. It's better than anything else you could possibly imagine. It's huge. 1.3 billion people, I believe, watched last year's final. Absolutely incredible and huge. But the part that many people didn't realize when this was announced was what's going to be happening for the 2034 World Cup, right? So 2026 is in North America. 2030 is in six countries, three continents across Spain, Portugal, Morocco, Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay, those six countries. But 2034, the one after that, I believe, and many other people might believe too, is now paved for Saudi Arabia to take this. I wholeheartedly believe that Saudi Arabia will be named the host of the 2034 World Cup at this point. And let me explain why I think that. So the way that this works is that they rotate, right? The different areas, the different football confederations rotate around the World Cup. CONCACAF has already had a World Cup. South America is going to be having a World Cup. Europe and Africa are now going to be having World Cups too in 2034, 2026, and 2030. Now that leaves 2034. So there's only two different regions now that can bid on the 2034 World Cup. That's Asia and Oceania. Asia and Oceania. And the reason why this is important is because the bids for the World Cup are due at the end of this month. Right, They have a deadline. FIFA has a deadline for the end of this month to submit bids for the 2034 World Cup. Saudi Arabia, to my knowledge, is the only country that has a legitimate bid in place to host this tournament. I believe Australia has also submitted a bid, but for them, in order to get this tournament, they would have to partner with other countries to be able to host the infrastructure for this tournament themselves. Now, the reason why this is so unique is because if Saudi Arabia is the only country that has a bid in place and can host the event at the end of the deadline, who's going to get the event? Who's going to get the event? Saudi Arabia is obviously going to get the event. We've talked about this many times by now. I believe I first said it two, three years ago, probably at this point, when Saudi Arabia started making all these investments in sports. Their end goal was always going to be the World Cup. It was always going to be the World Cup. And that's why we've seen them invest so much money from their sovereign wealth fund in their domestic football league over the last couple of years. Neymar, Ronaldo, all these players. It was always leading to the 2034 World Cup. Whether you like it or not, we obviously just saw one World Cup in Qatar. Now we're going to have another one in Saudi Arabia. And I think this is essentially a lock at this point. 
We still have a few years to go before they officially name the host for 2034. But if Saudi Arabia and Australia are the only countries putting in for this, Saudi Arabia is going to win it. We know FIFA. What does FIFA love? FIFA loves money. They love money. They love money more than any other sports organization in the world. We know for sure that they can be bribed. And my guess is that Saudi Arabia is going to find a way to get this tournament in 2034. So my expectation is 2026, of course, has already been named. It is going to be in North America. 2034 is going to be awesome, to be fair. I mean, this is really cool. It's a lot of travel for the players, which is certainly part of it. But hopefully they can spread out the games enough where it's not going to be a huge problem. Six countries, three continents, first time that has ever been done. Really, really, really cool for 2030. And then 2034 is going to be happening in Saudi Arabia. Let's take a quick break before we move to the next topic. All right. The last thing I want to talk about today is TGL. So I made a podcast about this probably several months ago at this point, a newsletter as well. You guys can go back and read that or listen to that if you want more info. But essentially what it is, is TGL is Tiger Woods and Roy McIlroy's new league. It's a golf league. It's an indoor golf league, which is what makes it unique. These players are going to be playing on simulators. There's going to be six teams, three PGA Tour players on each teams, and they're going to hold 18 hole golf matches every Monday night. So the way that these are going to work and why it is so unique is that there's a two hour time limit, right? So most golf matches could take four plus hours. And they're going to be indoors. It's a 135,000 square foot arena in Palm Beach, Florida. The way that it'll work is that the golfers will hit long distance shots into a simulator. Now, this isn't a simulator bay like you would find at an indoor golf range or something like that. This is an IMAX screen. It's absolutely massive. There's stadium seating around this place. If you haven't seen the renderings, go check them out. It's really cool. Now, they're going to hit the shots long distance into the simulator. Then what they'll do is when they see where those balls land on the simulator, They'll replicate the short game shots in a different area behind them. So they'll literally turn around and they'll hit short game shots, chipping, bunker shots, putting, all of that behind them in real life on an actual green. So this venue that they're going to be playing in could hold 2,000 people. And they've already got some of the world's best golfers to commit to playing. Tiger Woods, Roy McIlroy, John Rahm, Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa, Mats Fitzpatrick, Xander Schauffele, Max Homa, and a bunch of other players too. Now, one of the more unique things about this is that it's in Palm Beach. So a lot of these players, if you don't know, live in Jupiter. I think Jupiter is the most golf courses per square mile in the country, All right, There's literally a million different golf courses. There's hundreds, hundreds of PGA Tour players and PGA professionals that live in Jupiter, Florida. Palm Beach is obviously very close to there. So these players are going to be getting equity in the league, plus being paid for their participation. They just have to drive down the street. It's Monday nights, essentially during the off season of the PGA Tour. No brainer for them to be involved. But I want to talk you through not only the announcements that happened this week for the league, but why I think it's going to be successful. Many people online have laughed at my opinion. So you take it for what it's worth. You can determine on your own, but I just want to lay out my thought process as to why I think it's going to be successful. Now, the cons to this are it's indoor. It's a video game. Simulators are boring. I don't even like hitting on simulators. Why would I want to watch someone else hit on a simulator? We don't need more of this content, yada, yada, yada. But I think it's going to be successful for a number of reasons. Number one would be equity alignment. So TGL is owned by four different groups. A company called Tomorrow Sports, T-M-R-W Sports, owns 54% of it. Now, Tomorrow Sports is primarily owned by Tiger Woods, Roy McIlroy, and their partners. They're going to own 54% of the league. The PGA Tour themselves are going to own 18% of the league, 18% of the league. 
Now, the individual teams, I told you before, there's going to be six teams. They've already started selling the rights to these teams from some pretty legitimate equity holders. Those individual teams are going to own 18%. And the players themselves, those players I just mentioned, obviously Tiger, Roy, all those guys are going to double dip. But John Rahm, Justin Thomas, Morikawa, Fitzpatrick, Shoffle, Homa, yada. Those players are going to own 10%. So what this does is it aligns the incentives across essentially everyone that's involved in this thing, from Tomorrow Sports to the PGA Tour, who these guys essentially work for, to the teams who are owned by other individuals, to the players themselves. So you're aligning the incentives across all the major stakeholders, and it focuses everyone. It gives you focus on growth. So now everyone can turn and say, hey, look, we have skin in the game. Let's promote this thing on social media. Let's play our asses off. Let's make this super entertaining and let's make it something where the fans can really get behind. That's number one. Equity alignment is super important. Number two, and this goes along with equity alignment, is celebrity investors. Tomorrow Sports specifically and TGL2 have raised money from 50 to 100 at this point of the world's most popular athletes and celebrities. I'm talking about Josh Allen, Stephen Curry, Shohei Otani, Gareth Bale, Arthur Blank, who bought a team, David Blitzer, John Henry, who also bought a team, Shaq, Dwayne Wade, Kevin Durant, Lewis Hamilton, Tony Romo, Justin Timberlake, Sidney Crosby, Justin Bieber, DJ Khaled, Macklemore, Darius Rucker, Alex Morgan, and the list goes on and on and on and on. There are so many different celebrities that own equity in this business. And back to my point of before about everyone focusing on growth, they're going to use this distribution from the audiences of all these individuals to make a meaningful difference in the growth of TGL. Number three, primetime golf. And this goes back to my point about the breaking news. TGL struck an exclusive broadcasting deal with ESPN this past week. They're going to be broadcasting the inaugural season of TGL on ESPN and ESPN2. All of the matches will be on either ABC, ESPN, or ESPN2. Of course, ESPN Plus as well. But they'll all be on ESPN or ESPN2 for sure, every single match. And the reason why this is so important is because ESPN viewers are already trained to watch Monday night events. Monday night football, Monday night football, right? Now, some of the matches will be on Tuesdays, some will be on Mondays, but you get the point. This is primetime viewership. You're only going to be competing with the NBA and the NHL regular season games at this point. U.S. sports fans are already trained, like I said, to watch Monday nights because of Monday night football. And it's going to be the only golf events played in prime time. If you think about golf today, when do you watch golf on television? It's Thursdays, it's Fridays, it's Saturdays, and it's Sundays. But it's during the day. It's during the day. These guys are playing during the day, during the mornings, during the day. This is prime time golf, not midday golf. It's going to be electric, and it's going to be something that's going to attract, potentially, I believe, millions of viewers every single night. Now, the other thing that I think is super important here, and one thing that is often not discussed, is the social and gambling content behind this. All of the TGL players will be mic'd up during the matches, which has already proven to be successful with the match series. They've done seven of these events so far. These are the ones driven by Capital One, where they go to Las Vegas, they go to Montana, they go to all these different places. Tiger and Phil obviously played each other. Tom Brady's played in it. Patrick Mahomes has played in it. Travis Kelsey, Stephen Curry. All these guys have played it. And what we've seen is that it works when you get professional golfers involved and they're talking trash to each other. They're mic'd up. They're saying things. That's the type of content that everyone wants. It plays really, really, really well on social. ESPN, obviously, now with the rights, they're going to promote the hell out of this. They're going to be posting on Instagram, on Twitter, everywhere you can possibly imagine. And the rights, I think, are ultimately the most important part of this because 
everyone likes to knock ESPN, the whole go woke, go broke thing, whatever. I get it. Sometimes I don't agree with some of the stuff they do too from a broadcasting standpoint, the decisions that they make on airing different events, whatever. Everyone has their opinion. That's totally fine. But the thing that is undoubtedly true is that ESPN is still the biggest media partner possible to partner with when it comes to promoting your events. Their social reach is absolutely unmatched versus anyone else in the sports landscape today. They're going to get more viewers than anyone else in the sports landscape today. And this was a really smart move, in my opinion, for TGL to partner up with them. Now, the fee is undetermined. Financial terms were not available for this, this broadcasting arrangement. But even if they don't make a lot of money on season one, my guess is, again, that they will make some money. But if ESPN comes in, they cover the production costs and give them a few million dollars. That's still a huge win to go out and prove the concept on ESPN. That gives you the greatest chance for success. If you were able to go to a different or a smaller network, it would not nearly be as good or beneficial for you in the long run, even if you made more money up front. So that's obviously great. The other thing that came out this past week was that they announced some new players, Shane Lowry, Tommy Fleetwood, Tom Kim, yada, yada, yada. Other players are going to be playing as well. But the other bigger news on the financial front was that they signed a sponsorship deal with SoFi. So this actually happened like two to three days before the ESPN announcement, but they signed SoFi as a multi-year presenting sponsor and an arena naming rights deal with SoFi. So it's going to be called TGL presented by SoFi. And then the venue that they're going to be playing in is going to be called SoFi Center. Now, this venue, like I mentioned before, is 250,000 square feet. There's seating for 2,000 people. It's 75 feet high ceilings. The playing surface is 97 by 50. The screen is 40 by 64 feet. It's 20 times larger than a standard golf simulator. And the short game area is 40 yards wide. There's three dynamic putting surfaces that span 3,800 square feet. Again, the surfaces are different, so there's going to be some interacting with the different fans here. There's screens that span the entire side of the arena. You're going to be showing the heart rates of the players, everything else like that. Again, to be determined if this is going to be successful, but I'm willing to bet that it will be. Everyone else can have their opinion. I'm hearing it on social media. People are tweeting at me about it. They're DMing me about it. They've emailed back to me about it. A lot of people don't think this is going to be successful but I think it is going to be. Time will tell. I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Have a great week and we'll talk then.